Well, good morning. Hope everybody got some rest last night. I um, want to, just while we're kind of settling in here, I'll just make a few little mentions of uh, three different things. One is, um, as uh, Pastor Randy announced last night, one of the ministries that I'm affiliated with is the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. I'm the executive director of that organization. That is, uh, it was formerly called NANC, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. So if you're familiar with NANC, it's the same organization. We just changed the name in 2013 because nobody knew what neuthetic meant. So, uh, uh, so we're trying to be a little more clearly that we're a biblical counseling organization. And we exist to uh, certify competency in biblical counseling. So we have... Um, uh, we have about 1,500 certified counselors in 18 countries and about 75 uh, certified training centers in 18 countries. And uh, uh, we try to equip the Church of Jesus Christ to do sound biblical counseling. We want people who need help um, to be able to find a wise Christian who knows how to counsel the Bible uh, to help them uh, with their problems. And so uh, that's who we are and what we do. A number of you have asked questions about how you can get certified. And we've got some information on the table uh, in the, by the front door. Uh, you can uh, go out there and pick that up. Uh, you can also visit our website at biblicalcounseling.com, biblicalcounseling.com, and that has... Uh, resources on it. It's got information about how to get certified, information about who we are, and I'm happy to answer uh, questions about that as well. Um, and as I said, our uh, membership services coordinator is uh, a Hawaiian by marriage. Her name's Amber Kamatsu, and uh, she is uh, a lovely uh, young woman who's married to Trevor Kamatsu. Uh, I think some of you know her. Uh, and if you have specific and detailed questions, uh, she would love to help you with that. Her email address is akamatsu at biblicalcounseling.com. So uh, that's a little bit about uh, who we are, and hopefully that answers some of the questions some of you guys have asked. Another thing uh, that we do at ACBC every year is host an annual conference. The annual conference moves around. We have it in different places in the country, uh, and it's always on a different topic every year that is relevant to biblical counselors. This year, in 2015, it's 2015, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I get confused. Um, it just changed, and on any given day, I'm having meetings about stuff happening three years out, so I get confused about what year we're in. But uh, So it's 2015. Our annual conference is called Homosexuality, uh, Compassion, Counsel, and Care for Struggling People. And you know, you have to have your head in the sand not to know that in the last two years, uh, the world has really caved in on the issue of human sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular. Um, ten years ago, uh, homosexual marriage was illegal in every state in the Union, and today uh, it is legal in 36 states in the Union. And it, before we turn around twice, uh, maybe by this time next year, it'll be legal in every state in the Union. Uh, so that is an incredible amount of change for one decade. Uh, 
as a biblical counseling organization, we don't feel any pressure to do what so many of our friends are doing, which is having conversations and conferences and writing books about the ethics of homosexuality. We, we adopt a traditional 2,000-year-old interpretation of the Bible that homosexuality is a sinful way of life. Um, we, we're not trying to weigh in on that at all. We take that for granted. What our unique role is as a counseling organization is to try to help people who are struggling with this. The, the reality is, is that for all of the demand uh, to embrace a homosexual way of life, um, those people uh, will experience pain from their sin. Sin never gives the reward it promises. It always bites back and it bites back hard. Um, and for all the talk there is about accepting and mainstreaming a homosexual lifestyle, we believe that because the Bible says it's a sin, that people who struggle with that and embrace that way of life will experience pain. And we want to be uh, one of the organizations that knows how to help people who are struggling with those problems. And so we are going to have our conference be about how do you do ministry to people um, who are struggling with the pain uh, that comes from a homosexual way of life. So we're going to have sessions about how to help people change their homosexual desires. We're going to have sessions about what do you say to a wife, to a dad, to a mom, to kids who are devastated that their loved one has come out and is now living a homosexual lifestyle. How do you help them? So this is really a ministry conference where we want to give you tools uh, so that you would be able to do ministry to hurting people. Um, we're going to have a pre-conference called uh, Transgender Confusion and Transformational Christianity. As far as we know, uh, it's the very first con Christian conference about transgenderism. Um, and we're doing that conference in partnership with the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So if you're familiar with CBMW, we're partnering with them for that conference and we've got great speakers for both. So uh, Al, Al Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, is one of the speakers. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who's the author of Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she, was, uh, she converted to Christianity out of a life of lesbianism and is now a, a married, uh, homeschooling mother of five. Um, and she's going to talk about how the Lord changed her life. We've got Sam Alberry, who wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay?, uh, and a number of other speakers. So I'd uh, invite you to come to that conference if you want to come to Kentucky in October. Uh, our conference is in Louisville, Kentucky this year. We've never had our conference there, so we're having it there this year. Um, and uh, it's just a short little flight over to Kentucky. You'll be there in no time. Hopefully we'll uh, see some of you out there. It's uh, uh, first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of October. So you're invited to come to that. And there's information about that uh, on the uh, table out there as well. And then one last thing before we jump in here. Um, on the q and just I love Q&A. I love q and I love to hear your questions. I always think it's way more fruitful to hear your questions than it is for me to just select topics, which is what I've just selected topics and given them to you. Um, it's way more helpful for me to hear your questions. So please, if you have questions, write them down. I love answering them. Uh, w one of the things that you can know is that it has, I spent more time preparing, trying to figure out what I was not going to say, 
than trying to figure out what I would say, because there's all kinds of things that we could discuss, and we can't talk about all of them. So your questions will help me get to what really is on the table for you. So think about those questions, write them out. I'll look forward to answering them at lunchtime. All right. Those are those three things that I wanted to mention. Let's get back to where we left off um, uh, last night with this sort of cliffhanger that we've got these, these four problems that I'm arguing are endemic to human living. They are uh, anger, anguish, anxiety, and avoidance. And I said that there is a very important difference between those first two and those second two, and I promised that we would deal with that difference today. And so I want to do that, uh, but before we dive into that, let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful that of all the places we could be, you have brought us to this church on this island. And of all the things that we could be doing, you have called us together to do the most important thing there is, which is to study your timeless word. Father, would you help us to understand what it means would you help us to know how to connect your timeless word to the difficulty that we are in and the difficulties that our loved ones are in and help us to know how to be better, more faithful ministers of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the difference between anger and anguish on the one hand and anxiety and avoidance on the other hand? It's a really crucial difference for counseling. And here's what it is. It is possible to experience anger and anguish and not be guilty of sin. All right? That is to say, it is possible for you to be angry and to be sad and be completely righteous and it is not possible for you to have anxiety or to avoid and be righteous. Anxiety and avoidance are always sinful. Anger and anguish might be sinful, but they also might be righteous. Now, let me, let me make a couple of comments about this. First, anxiety and avoidance are always sinful. This is really controversial. And listen, I don't know who's in here. Okay, I don't know your story. I'm not trying to hit anybody over the head here. Um, but I, I know, I've actually been yelled at for this statement. So I know that what I'm saying is controversial. It is always a sin to worry. Now, I've, I had one man get very upset with me. He was actually a man who had chronic panic attacks. So his, his physical body was repeatedly responding to a desperate situation in his soul. And he was on medication for the panic attacks and this kind of thing. And he was saying, are you saying I don't have a physical problem? And I said, no, I'm not saying you don't have a physical problem. I'm saying that you 
have a physical problem which demonstrates how painful and bad sin is. We live in this weird world where we think the really serious problems are the physical problems. That's not true. The really serious problems are the sicknesses in our soul. That's the real serious problem. You can die of cancer and still go to heaven. You, you, can, uh, you can die of a heart attack and still live forever with Jesus. But if your soul isn't right, what difference does it make how healthy you are? You're just waiting for that time when you go to the place where the worm never dies. So I'm not saying you don't have a physical problem. You clearly do. The question is, what started the physical problem? And, and the reality is the Bible is crystal clear about the sinfulness of anxiety. Um, Jesus in Matthew 6 says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, three times. In the span of about 11 verses, he commands, don't worry. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, be anxious for nothing. For nothing. Jesus, going back to Matthew chapter 6, he places, uh, he, he defines the problem of anxiety as the problem of no faith. He says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, O you of little faith. Right? Anxiety says things won't be all right. God won't take care of me. That's what anxiety says. Jesus says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Not like most people say. Don't. Most people say, don't worry about it because they don't want to hear about your garbagey problems. Ah, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. They just want to blow you off. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And he preaches a sermon about the power of God that is directed towards your good. If you are a Christian, you live in a universe where a good God directs all of his power and all of his care towards you, and it's a sin to think that in that world things won't be okay. Things might not be fun. God knows things might not be easy. But everything will be well in the grand scheme of things. So anxiety is always saying, you know the most, the most common command in the Bible? The most frequent command, number one, way more than anything else, two words, fear not. It's the most common command in the Bible. So anxiety is always a sin. Even when the, the ramifications of that sin are painful and physical, it's always a sin. Avoidance is always a sin. This can be confusing because when I was giving examples last night, I used everything from heroin addiction to blaring songs on the radio. So what does that mean? Does it mean it is a sin to listen to songs on the radio? Does it mean it's a sin to eat ice cream? I hope not. I hope it's not a sin to eat ice cream. I had a, they put ice cream on the bottom of your shaved ice here. You know this? It's like a special surprise waiting for you at the bottom. You're like enjoying the mango, and then it's like, ooh, vanilla down there. It's great. Um, so I hope it's not a sin. It's, it's not a sin to rest and enjoy God's created good. The issue with avoidance that makes it sinful is what I'm talking about, avoidance. Where do you go for comfort? Do you run to Jesus Christ and the Bible, or do you run to creature comforts that make you feel good? That, that's the issue, is where is your allegiance? Where is your rest? Where do you go to relax? Are you a person, a man, or a woman of prayer, 
or are you just trying to run away and avoid? That's the issue. It's always a sin to fail to respond to your stresses without faith, hope, and love. That's what we're talking about. So, but with, with anger and anguish, it's possible to be angry and sad in a way that honors the Lord. Here's why this is so important. It's important as you live your life and it's important as you live life doing counseling with other people. If you are sad in a righteous way, we don't have a problem that needs fixing. We don't want to fix people if they're working properly, right? So... Um, the, go back to that funeral home story that I told yesterday. You're supposed to be sad at the funeral home. When your 34-year-old wife, which was the situation I was referring to, when she dies suddenly, if you're happy about that, that's where you have the problem. Well, something has gone desperately wrong if you would rejoice over the death of a dear and a precious loved one. So we're supposed to be sorrowful. There's times when you are supposed to be angry. Um, if uh, your husband comes home and says, you know, I need to confess to you that I've been committing adultery. Your first response is not supposed to be, well, praise the Lord, honey. I'm just so glad that the Lord is going to bring good out of this situation. You know what? The Lord will bring good out of this situation, but the Lord bringing good out of bad does not make the bad good. There is still wickedness and evil. I was doing counseling with a couple, and he had confessed to his wife that um, uh, he had been committing adultery, and he called me the next day. He said, well, she made me sleep on the couch last night. He's complaining about this, and I'm like, you know what, man? You belong on the couch. Like The, the couch is where you're supposed to be for a little bit. I mean, if, if you're on the couch in 10 years, let's talk. But, but the first night, the, that's why God made couches. That's, that's where you're supposed to be. You're, you're supposed to be angry. And if she weren't angry, she, it, would, it would mean that she was, making, she was thinking small things about your marriage and small things about the vows that you took and small things about your sexuality. There are times when it's good and right to be angry and sad, and what is wrong is to be happy in the face of those realities. But this is, this is really tricky from a practical counseling perspective. How would you know when your anger and sadness is righteous and when it is sinful. How would you know that? If we're going to do counseling well with people, we, we have to know what we're dealing with. We have to be able to identify, is this anger and anguish righteous or is it sinful? And so what I want to do for the next few moments is give you a few indicators of the righteousness or the sinfulness of anger and anguish. So here's a few indicators of how you would know. This is for your own life, and this is as you do ministry uh, with other people in the context of counseling. Here's one indicator. 
your anger and your anguish are righteous when you are angry and sad about what makes God angry and sad. Your anger and anguish are righteous when you're angry and sad about what makes God angry and sad. That means your, your anger and your anguish are righteous when you're angry and sad about sin. Okay? When, uh, when you learn that millions of people in this country are able to be executed because abortion on demand is legal, you're supposed to be brokenhearted about that. You're supposed to be cut to the quick about that. You're not allowed to learn that fact and be neutral about it. Go on with life. Hmm. Somebody else's problem, it's not mine. It is your problem. It's all of our problem. It's, it, it ought to break our hearts to live in a culture of death, and that's just one example. We've we got to be angry and sad about sin. So this, this means that our anger and our anguish is not righteous most of the time. Because most of the time, what makes us angry and sad is not sin, but preference. Most of the time. If you're honest, that's true. Mostly what gets us fired up or what gets us brokenhearted is, is our, we don't get our preferences. You know one little dopey example about this? I was, I was actually just dealing with my own heart on this because my wife does this thing that frustrates me. All right, so here we go. Um... Uh, I, my cell phone behavior, all right, and my wife's cell phone behavior is very different. When, so I've got my cell phone right here, and um, it's, it's ready to go. And the reason I know it was ready to go is because last night when I went to bed, I have the cell phone charger by my bed, and I plugged it in, and all night it charged while I was sleeping. That's the way you're supposed to do it. That's the right way. All right? My wife, does, she's not as mature as I am. She doesn't understand this, all right? My wife does not do that. My wife, she waits until her little battery is in the red zone, and then she goes starts trying to find a charger. Sometimes she finds the charger on my nightstand. She unplugs it, brings it down to the kitchen, and plugs it in there so she can still see it while she's doing whatever she's doing. Um, and then she charges it just to get it in the green, and then she unplugs it, and it goes back in her pocket or back in her purse or whatever. Listen, that drives me up a wall for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is it's just the wrong way to do it, um, <laughs> but because you're supposed to get it all the way full and then drain it all day and then plug it in at night. That's the way you're supposed to do it. But the other thing is sometimes I like go up to bed and I lay down, and my head is sinking into the pillow, and I'm kind of blindly reaching for the cord, and it's not there. Honey, where's my cell phone? Oh, you know what? I moved it down to the kitchen tonight. Well, I'm, I'm this close to a coma. You know, it's 10.30 at night, and now i got to get up out of bed and go do it so I can charge my phone the right way. Now, now I'm, I'm 
I'm being intentionally silly about talking about this in the right way versus the wrong way. The reality is, it's not like I'm right and she's wrong, is it? It's just, she has her way, she prefers to charge it till it's in the green and then go till it's in the red, and I prefer to charge it through the night and use it all day. Listen, I'm not kidding you. I've had moments of real frustration where I'm like, you know, and I have to be like, okay, Lord, I'm not going to get angry about this. This is a preference thing. I can give my wife her preference. I don't have to fight for mine. That's, that's the way mostly we are. Mostly we pick our preferences and we get upset about that. But when we're fighting for our preferences, our anger and our anguish are not righteous. So first of all, we're angry and we're sad about what makes God angry and sad, and that means we're angry and sad about sin. Second indicator is we try to notice the difference between righteous and sinful anger and anguish. Second is that our anger and anguish are righteous when they're oriented towards the service of others and not the service of ourselves. So a a really helpful passage about this is in Philippians. And um, in Philippians chapter 2, The, um, the Apostle Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let's assume that you are angry and sad about something sinful, about something that makes God angry and sad. Now what are you motivated to do? Are you motivated to reach out and serve others? Or are you motivated to serve yourself? I have to tell on myself with this too. This is, um, this is my best attempt to try to communicate the distinction here. Uh, several years ago, in fact, Carson was just, I guess he was just about, 12 months old. So this would have been about, uh, this would have been about eight years ago. And uh, we had uh, spent Sunday afternoon with some friends. We were, uh, uh, we were leaving their house. I had to get to the church office on Sunday afternoon where I was meeting a couple for counseling. And this was going to be our second meeting together. The first meeting was interesting. They showed up and uh, they were both angry. And she said, um, I am coming to this meeting with you um, because I promised my husband that I wouldn't divorce him before we had at least one counseling conversation. So I'm here, but I don't expect it to be good, and I've got our uh, divorce attorney on the phone right here. So she she held up her phone and showed me his number on there, and she said, if this doesn't go really, really well, I'm calling him when I walk out of this room. No pressure there. So um, I was able to spend a little bit of time with them, and by the end of the meeting, they agreed that they would not call the divorce attorney, but they'd come back for another meeting. So this was that meeting that I was on my way to on this Sunday afternoon, and I liked to um, spend about 20 or 30 minutes with my notes from the previous counseling session before a next counseling session just to kind of get reacquainted with it and pray 
Um, and so we were leaving in time to, uh, to get to the office to be able to do that. And Lauren said, hey, can we stop at Walmart real quick because I'm out of diapers. And, uh, you know, when you're 12 months old, you need, you need diapers. So we're going to stop at Walmart. And I pulled into the fire lane, and Lauren was going to run out. I was like, you got to be really quick because we're cutting it close. And she said, I'm going to be quick. Well, she ran in at about 25 after the hour. We're five minutes away from the church. And before I knew it, it was five tell the hour, five minutes till time to meet. And she's still in there. And I'm sitting there going, what, what is she doing? Like we got this couple, they're going to be sitting on the front steps of the church because they can't come in. I got the threat last week that this better be good or we're filing for divorce. And now here is my wife not hurrying. What, what could she be doing in it? And I'm imagining her flipping through the CD aisle and all this kind of thing, trying to figure out. And I'm like, what in the world? And I realized that I was sitting there gripping the steering wheel, planning what I was going to say to her. And the Lord was kind and made me aware of myself. And I was like, you know, I'm sitting here figuring out how to unload when what I need to do is figure out how to help my wife. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on in there, but, but just think with me here. Is it, is it wrong, is it sinful to kind of selfishly do whatever you want in Walmart while a couple on the brink of divorce is needing help and we have an arranged time? Is that wrong? We'd say that's unloving. We, we want to be loving and not just flip through Walmart while the couple needs help over here. So, so let's assume that's right. But now I'm tempted to just be angry, to just serve myself, to just vent. And if I'm going to do Philippians 2, I'm not allowed to do that. I've got to consider the interests of others as more significant than my own. And so I need to think about, you know what? The Lord placed me in this situation, not just to get angry and vent my emotions, but to help me and my wife think through how we might love others more effectively in a time crunch when a marriage is potentially on the line. And so I started praying, you know, Lord, help me. Help me to hear my wife out. Help me to know how to help both of us think about how to love others well and, and not just pop off here. And uh, about that time, the sliding doors from Walmart open up and Lauren comes out and she's going, I'm so and she's like walking to the car and she gets in. She opens up the door and that's the moment when I, would have, when I was ready, had the Lord not intervened, when I was ready to be like, Lauren, there's five minutes to tell time to meet with him. What are you doing? But I didn't do that. She opens up the door. I said, what happened? And she said, honey, oh my goodness. First of all, you don't know how crazy busy it was in there. She, she said, I ran in, I got the diapers but she couldn't get the diapers because the shelf was empty, so she had to go get somebody, and they had to go to the back and get a thing of diapers. She comes, all the lines are full, and she's like trying to figure out which line is maybe moving the quickest, so she gets behind this one line, and things are moving, and she thinks she's doing all right. She gets to where she's next, and she's got an elderly woman in front of her who has an envelope full of coupons. And, and this woman is, my mama, this woman is like going through the envelope trying to find the coupons 
for all the stuff <laughs> that she had. And Lauren is like having panic attacks behind this woman. She's like looking at other lines to see like, should I just get out of this line and go start over in another? Like, what should I do? While she's trying to figure that out, the woman's envelope hits the counter and confetti comes out. So Lauren bends down and helps her pick this woman's coupons, which you want her to do, you know? I mean, what do I want? No, I want her to be like, get out of the way, lady. I, my husband's got to get to church. You don't, you don't want that. So, of course, of course, we want her to pick up the coupons and put them in the envelope. And so by the time she got through with all that and got out of there, it was a five-minute trip was a 25-minute trip. You know, what are you going to do? So I said, all right, you know, I didn't have any reason to be angry in the first place. If I was not thinking about how to serve my wife in my anger... I never would have found out until it was too late that I had no reason to be angry in the first place. And so we need to be careful that when we think we have a reason to be angry or sad, that we motivate and direct that anger and that sadness towards service of others and not just venting our own frustration. Here's a third indicator. Our anger and our anguish are righteous when it is controlled. So in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So even when we are righteously angry or righteously sad, we need to be careful that we keep that under control. Here's what that means. That means I'm not allowed to have a temper tantrum. I'm not allowed to have a fit of rage. I'm not allowed to just come in and start screaming at you. Even if you did something legitimately wrong, by the time I'm giving full vent to my frustration, I'm wrong. And I need to, to get your help with that and I need to get forgiveness with that. Something a little harder, let's talk about anguish. It's possible to have our anguish be uncontrolled, isn't it? Um, a church that I pastored several years ago uh, a man lost his wife. They'd been married for decades. She had uh, lost a battle with cancer. And uh, he was heartbroken. He worked for a man in our congregation who was, I mean, a model Christian as he was going through this time of loss with his wife. While he was taking her to chemotherapy, he didn't even ask where he was. He just gave him the time off. In the aftermath of the death, he said, listen, I want you to take a couple weeks. I don't want to see you at work. Your paycheck's going to keep coming. Just take care of it. Well, by five months, uh, he still was not leaving his house. Uh, he wasn't talking with his kids. He wasn't going to work. His, um, his employer actually came up to me, and he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I'm, he said I've, I've really wanted, I love this man. I've wanted to care for him. He's, I've given him weeks and weeks and weeks, months even, of, uh, of, of just free money. But like the reality is, I'm not even worried about the money. It's just that the job isn't getting done. And I, I don't know what to do. And so after five months, we had to say, hey, look, you know, you're supposed to be sad at the funeral home. 
And you're supposed to be sad now. We, it's, it's appropriate to feel the sting of the loss of, of your precious wife. But after five months where you've disengaged from a relationship, you're not going to work, you're not getting out of the bed, you're not eating, we would say that this is unrestrained grief. And you need some help to, uh, to figure out how to, um, uh, how to respond in a way that's more biblical. Now, the way you engage that person is very, very different than the way you engage the person with unrestrained anger. But we'd still say that there needs to be some controls placed on that. And ultimately, you're grieving here as one with no hope instead of one who, who has hope. A fourth indicator is that our anguish and our anger are righteous when it's temporary. When it's temporary. That is to say, we have to move to bring to resolution our anger and our anguish. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. This, was, this is a passage that can be easily misunderstood. It doesn't mean that if you get in a conflict with your spouse, for example, at 545, you have to resolve the conflict before the sun goes down at 610. It, do, it doesn't mean that. What, what Paul is doing is he's using, the, he's using an idiom, he's using a figure of speech to say you need to settle matters quickly. Things need to be resolved soon. Don't, don't let the sun go down. Uh, settle matters quickly with your accuser. That means that if you are sitting there and you're still angry with somebody days and weeks and months and years after whatever conflict happened, even if they sinned against you and you were right to be angry to start with, the ongoing nature of your anger indicates that your angry response has become sinful and you need to repent. So our anger and our anguish are righteous when they're temporary. That leads to number five. Our anger and our anguish are righteous when they are interested in reconciliation. Have you ever heard anybody say, maybe after they've been, they've been legitimately, authentically wronged, say, I'll never forgive that person. What they did was unforgivable. Anybody who says that even if the offense was a genuine offense, that would be a sinful display in response to what would, might be a legitimate offense. And the reason is because God is angry and sad at sin. And so when God is angry and sad at sin, we ought to be angry and sad at sin. But God doesn't stay that way, does he? God always moves to reconcile. Uh, God's anger and sorrow over sin will be assuaged. It will either be assuaged through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sin or through the eternal punishment of sinners in hell. But God's anger and sadness will end. 
He, he, he gets reconciliation. And so we are, if our anger and our anguish is going to be like the Lord's, we are to be interested in reconciliation as well. And listen, if you're, if you're like me, you have been deeply wronged and deeply hurt by people. Uh, the ability of people to wound and to harm us is pretty significant. But it is fundamentally unchristian. It's fundamentally against the gospel to adopt the attitude, I'm never going to forgive that person. But we instead need to pray, Lord, give me grace to know how to forgive this person. Lord, give me grace to know how to move towards reconciliation with that person. Lord, give me the ability that if they would ever want to make it right, that I would already be spiritually ready in my heart to be able to make that happen. One of the ways that I'll say this to people is, um, you know, adultery is a big one. Um, my, my experience, um, one, of the, one of the counseling issues where forgiveness is the hardest to come by is when a wife is married to a man who has committed adultery. This is just, in my experience, I'm ready when I'm meeting with a couple where the wife has committed adultery that one of the issues on the table, if the man is repentant and wants to change and be restored, that one of the things that's just going to take a lot of time is having this woman be really forgiving. And one of the things that I'll say to a woman in that situation who's, who's rightly sad and angry, her husband has committed a terrible sin, one of the things that I'll say at a certain point is, because she'll say, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to forgive him. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to get rid of this bitterness. And you know what? I understand that, and so do you. We all know what it feels like to have something done to us, and we don't know how we're ever going to make it right. One of the things that I'll ask a woman like that to imagine is that she's standing on the peak of a mountain. And... That mountain is the mountain of anger and bitterness that she currently is experiencing. And, and way, way off in the distance, touching the horizon, is another mountain peak. And that mountain peak is the peak of forgiveness and restoration. And in between these two mountain peaks, we've got to descend this one mountain, and we can see all kinds of trees and forest in between to the next mountain, which you have to climb up to get to forgiveness. And I'll say, you know, in that forest, there's all kinds of logs over the trail. There's rocks in your path. There's streams that we can't see. Um, I don't know what's waiting for us when we descend down in there. And we've got a journey to get to forgiveness. But are you willing to start taking steps to getting to that point? And, and for somebody who says, yeah, I'm, I'm willing I'm willing to start moving in that direction over there. Then I think that's a great place to start. Somebody who's willing to get to reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't need to be automatic. In fact, it usually isn't when sins are grievous. But we need people who are interested in reconciliation. And if you were the kind of person, if you're struggling in the kind of way that would say, no, I want to stay right where I am, then that's what we're talking about as the problem, not that they haven't arrived. Final issue 
is that our anger and anguish are righteous when they are holy and pure and avoid sin. And so this I mean to be a catch-all category at the end, um, where I'm just, I'm trying to rule out any other sinful manifestation of anger and anguish. So maybe in your anger or your sorrow, you're tempted to gossip about somebody. Well, that's a sin. Not allowed to do that. Maybe in your anger or your anguish, you just go on a cussing rant. You're not allowed to use filthy and impure language. So this is my kind of big bucket where I'm catching hay. Uh, Any sinful manifestation that attends your anger and your sorrow, even if you have a righteous reason for that emotional response, you're still not allowed to sin in the display of that. So those are some things that we're looking for to distinguish our, um, our anger and our anguish from the righteous and the sinful varieties. When people are angry and sad about things they're supposed to be angry and sad about, things are working the way they're supposed to, and we don't have anything we need to fix. But when we start to see sinful manifestations of those responses, that's when, when counseling is required. Those are the four issues that all of us struggle with. They're the four issues that people are going to be coming for counseling help with from now until Jesus comes back. And let me add two more issues that actually grow out of those four issues, but, uh, but, but let me add two issues and tell you what to do with those six. Another common issue in, in counseling is conflict resolution. So this is a little different. Conflict resolution is going to grow out of anger, right? I'm angry. You didn't give me what I wanted, so now we're in a fight. But the dynamics of dealing with anger when there's two people in a conflict or maybe a number of people in a conflict, those are a little bit differently different than just helping somebody with with their individual anger issue. And then another issue would be decision-making. Decision-making, when we think about counseling, we think about, we tend to think about really hard problems. Um, but honestly, if, if I said, I'm not going to do any counseling from now till the day I die, except helping people who are confused about what decisions they should make, I'd be really busy, honestly. I mean, just think about all the decisions that we get confused about. I mean, some of the most frequent conversations I have had with people have been, should I take this medical treatment or should I not? The doctor says, I have six months. I might be able to buy three extra months with this really radical intervention. Do you think I should do that? I have that conversation monthly with people. Um, A little less extreme, uh, should I take the job in Houston, Texas, or should I take the job in Sacramento, California? I don't know. Which one should I take? I have that conversation all the time. uh, teach at a seminary and a Bible college where everybody's trying to get married. Um, and so all the time I'm talking to people, should I marry this girl or not? I'm interested. Both of these boys are pursuing me. Which one do you think I should let take me on a date? I have that conversation all the time. Nobody's got like big, terrible problems. They just need help sorting out among options. Anger, anguish, anxiety, avoidance, conflict resolution, and decision-making. If you wanted a homework assignment leaving this conference, I would say every year, read something about one of those six things. Read an article, read a book. 
And if you can kind of grow in your ability to help people with those six problems, you'll be ready to do most of the kinds of counseling that, uh, that the Lord will send your way. That, that is a crack at the kinds of problems that people have. Now, what we're supposed to do next, and we've got these two sessions stacked on top of one another, and then we'll take a break and then have another two sessions uh, back to back. Um, what we need to do now is try to help figure out how do we work with people to see change happen? How do we help?